so good to study the Word of God. Yeah, absolutely. And God's Word just changes our perspective and it changes our mindset. So we're going to study this morning from Philippians chapter 4. If you have a Bible, please turn there. This is personally my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. I love Philippians chapter 4. And that's not only because the Lord, um, for the last 28 years, has specifically used this chapter to teach me and to challenge me and to minister to me, but it's also because this chapter is such an encouragement to us. And this chapter is also just a, a wealth. It's a resource of practical application on how to live. You know, I was thinking that, that verses 4 to 13 are kind of like the Ten Commandments of chapter 1, verse 21, which is our theme, for me to live as Christ. The, the, this section is like the, the New Testament Ten Commandments. I was kind of rolling that thought around in my mind because I was thinking that's kind of a, a neat thought. And then I started to go through it, and I thought there are really ten specific applications here in verses 4 to 13, uh, ten statements of instruction in those ten verses that kind of serve as our New Testament charge. So I really, if you haven't gotten it by now, I really love this chapter of Scripture. And I hope by the time that we're done studying it, you're going to love it as much as I do because it's just fantastic. Now, that being said, if you were here last week or if you won't, let me recap it a little bit. Paul just finished at the end of chapter 3 talking about the fact that our citizenship is in heaven. You remember we talked about uh, the relationship of that to citizenship in America and how well would we do on that test? And, and, and what he's saying here at the end of chapter 3, again, applies back to that part of chapter 1, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. So he draws this really stark contrast uh, between living in the transformation that Christ has imparted on us when we trust in his salvation. In other words, we trust Christ to save us. God transforms us. He imparts his holiness onto us. We become new creations in Christ. And he compares that to the characteristics, we saw this at the end of chapter 3, of those who don't trust him and those who don't love him. So we saw those four traits uh, that he lists. Let me look at the verse again. It's in verse 19. We saw those four traits of the enemies of the cross, that their end is destruction, that their God is shame, that their glory, uh, excuse me, their God's their appetite, their glory is their shame, and their minds unset on earthly things. And then he called us essentially to examine ourselves, uh, really even as believers, to make sure that we're not allowing those characteristics to, to sneak into our lives because the enemy, even though he's been defeated, if you're a believer, he, he can't get your life back, but he can try to drag you down on your way to heaven. And he can make life miserable, and he can try to damage you, and he can try to undermine your faith, and he can try to push you away from holiness, and push you away from the presence of God. So he's not done. In fact, he's working harder because he's so angry that he's defeated. So he's going to continually try to, try to damage who we are in Christ. So Paul says, look at these characteristics in verse 19. And make sure that that part of the old man, that, that that part of your old life doesn't come in. Because it's not only going to damage your spiritual growth, but it will also damage your witness. So now as Paul begins 
the first part of this final chapter. He provides an example of that. It's in verse 2. We'll study it in just a moment. About these two women that had served with him in the work of ministry. That because they're not getting along, they're kind of having a, a detrimental effect on the ministry. And he, he calls it out. We'll look at it in a second. Uh, uh, about how, how much this is harming the ministry. But... The opposite of that, because we want to put positive on this this morning, we want to walk out with positive encouragement and, and, and edification and strategies that we can use to grow in our faith. So if we turn that around, if we can put this off and exalt Christ instead in how we live, the impact will be huge. In other words, we kind of have this choice of, are we going to live in a way that exalts Christ, or are we going to live in a way that takes away from Christ? There's really not a lot of room in the middle. Either we're exalting Christ or we're not exalting Christ. And if to me to live as Christ, that means everything in my life that I'm doing as a believer is to exalt Christ. It's to show Christ. It's to talk about Christ. It's to magnify Christ. It's to worship Christ. It's to be in the presence of Christ. You've heard me say this again and again as we've gone through this book. Because everything in this book is about Jesus Christ. Because the Christian life is to be about Jesus Christ. So we've got to come back to this thought that this is ultimately most important. And if we can, if we can turn direction a little bit in some of these areas, even, even just a little bit to start, it will make a tremendous impact in terms of the influence and the strength that we have in our testimony. That's why I'm calling this message, A Little Bit Goes a Long Way. Because if we can, if we can make he, uh, inroads and headway in this, in becoming more faithful to the Lord and more honoring to Him in how we live, uh, we will become effective bondservants of Christ. So let's read these five verses. Chapter 4, book of Philippians, verses 1 to 5. You may want to have a, a piece of paper and a pen out. We're going to take some notes this morning and, and interact with this text a little bit. Therefore, verse 1, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown. In this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Now again, Philippians may be the book that has the most practical spiritual instruction, the, the greatest measure of application all throughout the New Testament. And this chapter begins with actions that we can easily do. I, I was struck by that as I was studying. We can easily do these things. These are not outside of the realm of possibility. They're not so far beyond us that it's like, well, it's a nice ideal, but there's no way I could possibly become that. As we are empowered by the Holy Spirit and as we mature in our faith in Christ, these are eminently doable. So I want you to notice, even though nobody wants to go back through English class, right? I want you to really notice the verbs. When you study Scripture, you've got to notice uh, English, the, the language, you've got to notice tense, you've got to notice, notice whether it's a, a suggestion or a command. These are important things. And I want you to see, as we go through this chapter, the verbs, because the Holy Spirit uses verbs that are all active commands. 
Now, why do we say that that's important? It's important because it tells us that every one of these things he's telling us to do is a choice of our will. These are things that we have to decide whether we're going to do them or not. Now, if we love the Lord, and if our will is surrendered to his Holy Spirit, that's not going to be a problem. Because if to us is to live as Christ, then we're going to want to honor Christ, and we're going to look at those things and go, well, that's what I have to do. That's my calling. God has empowered me to do that. It's a joy to do that. It will make my testimony powerful. I'll honor Christ if I do this, so this is what I'm going to do. But if we're trying to live a dual citizenship, If we're trying to be a Christian on one side, but we're also trying to still uh, have have a heart that desires the world and is engaged in the world and participates in the world, then we're going to look at these active commands and we're going to say, well, that's kind of unreasonable. And, And that's really too much to ask. And you know what? I don't know if I can do those things. Every statement that's in this text is logical and practical for someone who's heavenly minded. Every statement in this text is something that somebody who honors Christ and loves Christ and wants to tell others about his grace will desire to do. So let's just take it apart. And again, write some things down. Write some headings this morning. There are going to be five very simple, very practical, very doable statements of instruction. Starts in verse 1. I'm going to be very, very straightforward this morning. Verse 1, Paul gives us a strong exhortation to stand firm in the Lord. Now this is an extension of thought from what we read in chapter 3. That as people who are no longer citizens of this world, the people who are called aliens, that, that, that we don't belong, and we're not saying that because we're proud or because we're, we're arrogant or, or we're saying, well, we're better than you because we're saved and we don't belong... No, he's saying your priorities, your mindset, who you are as a person has changed. Your your desire now is for heaven, not for earth. So you really don't belong here, but we're here. So as heavenly citizens, and especially this is true as we see the world rapidly changing and becoming more hostile and more intolerant toward biblical Christianity, he said as heavenly citizens... In an increasingly difficult world, we are going to have to choose to stand for Christ. And that will not be easy by any stretch. We already see how resistant culture is becoming to Christianity. And I don't think any of us has a clue how bad it's going to get. And it's hard not to believe that Jesus' return is anything but imminent. We'll talk about that more in a couple minutes. But here's the thing, whether we live now or whether we live in the days of Pentecost, which was not easy, even though the church was growing every day, there was still opposition, there were threats on their life, the apostles were getting thrown in jail and being told never to name the name of Jesus again, and the church started to get persecuted and spread out. Or whether we live in the days of Paul as he's writing Philippians because he's in jail for his faith. He's about to have his head cut off because he's a minister of the gospel. And we know that the church was being pushed and secularism was creeping into the church and all the gods and all the temples in these cities that he's writing to were very strong and the church theology was starting to weaken. So, So whether we live in the days of Pentecost or we live in the days of Philippians or we live now, No matter what's going on, we still have to have 
an influence for Christ. And we still have to stand firm for Christ. Every era of church history has, has had significant challenges, but those who love the Lord never waver. And that's going to be the biggest challenge for the evangelical church over the next 10 years if the Lord even waits that long. We have to be more determined to take Christ to the nations. In fact, what we're seeing going on around us, these changes and the push against Christianity should make us more fervent and more passionate about taking the gospel and fulfilling the Great Commission. And the way to be most effective in that is to be like the apostles were in Acts 4.13 where it says they recognized that they had been in the presence of the Lord. They were so full of the Spirit, that they were bold and, and confident and faithful and effective for the Lord. That's why, if you look back at verse 1, Paul says, I'm so proud of you guys. You're my joy and my crown. You're, you're the ones that I look at, not, not like those compromised believers in Corinth and, and not like the ones who are losing their first love in Ephesus. You guys are my joy and crown. There's nothing that thrilled Paul more than to see people maturing in their faith and standing firm for the Lord. And as I thought about that this week, I thought, I wonder if that's my greatest joy. Is it your greatest joy and my greatest joy to not only mature in our own faith, but to see our brothers and sisters maturing in their faith and to stand alongside them and to encourage them and and disciple them? And then I thought, now how does it apply to our kids? Is it our greatest joy to look at our kids and say they're growing and maturing in faith? This time of year, there's a lot of pictures on social media about proms and things that are going on. Those are wonderful. That's happy. But what is our greatest desire for our kids? As they face peer pressure, as they go to school, as they go off to college, what's our desire? Are we infusing in them? Are they seeing in us standing firm for our faith? Are they seeing in us those that will not waver about representing Jesus Christ well? Because they're going to look at our example, and when they go to the school the next time, they're going to be faced with challenges, and they're going to have to make a decision. And they're going to look back at us and say, what did my parents do? My joy and my crown. There's no greater joy that I have than to see you standing firm in the Lord. How much stronger would our witness be? How much stronger would our influence be if that's our priority? Second, look at verse 2. He says the second thing we need to do, the second piece of practical instruction that we absolutely can do is to resolve conflicts in order to honor Christ. Now, unfortunately, churches are notorious places of conflict. Whether it's overt or whether it's subtle and under the surface, churches have conflict because it's a group of people that are together, that are trying to become one-minded, that are pushing toward the same goal, but invariably there's going to be conflict. And Paul looks at Philippi and he says, wait a second, you're the church that's exemplary. You're the church that stands out among all the other ones that I've set up and ministered to. So Philippi, I want to make sure you don't get infected by this disunity. So he calls out these two women, Euodia and Syntyche. Now, uh, most researchers 
believe that Euodia and Syntyche were deaconesses in Philippi. We don't know for sure, but it does seem like they had kind of a prominent ministry role. Paul says, they have struggled with me in ministry. So there's speculation and, and, and research uh, about how, how much they ministered, whether they had been missionaries with him and traveled to him, or they had just ministered to him when he was in Philippi, or whether maybe they had discipled young women that were coming to the faith. We don't know, but we do know that they were prominent enough in their ministry that when there's conflict between them, Paul calls them out. And we don't know if it was relational Maybe they just had some kind of a personal conflict, or maybe there's disagreement about theology or, or how ministry was going to be done, or, or whatever the case may be. Doesn't matter what it was. What matters is it existed. They're not in harmony. And Paul says, I have to name you, and he does so in a gracious and loving way. He says, I beg you, resolve it. Get past it and get back to the work. And I want you to notice the three words at the end of verse 2 because this is the key to calling them out. He doesn't do this angrily or, or arrogantly. He doesn't say, hey, you two, knock it off. You're a disgrace. What are you thinking? I mean, he could have had some tone here, but he doesn't. He says, I beg, I, I urge Euodia and Syntyche to live in harmony, tell me the next three words in the text. In the Lord. Live in harmony in the Lord. Now, by including that, Paul is not saying that we just try to do our best and live in harmony. He says, if you're not in harmony, you're not really abiding in Christ. What you're doing is you're defending yourself and you're living for yourself, and you're trying to sway somebody to, to what you think and act. And that's dangerous in the body of Christ because it damages God's family. We're not going to agree on everything. We're going to have disagreements just based on our upbringing or how we grew up in church or, or how we think or what our personality's like or, or opinion, philosophy, theology, whatever. There's going to be disagreement in the church. What is key is how we handle that disagreement. We can't use it as a time to, to defame somebody's character or, or to divide the body or in any way to undermine the church because those things aren't of the Lord. And if you hear that, if someone does that in your presence, whether it's here or outside the church, somebody, somebody says something or does something that, that is starting to damage Christ's body, you need to cut them off and not listen to it and say, look, this doesn't honor Christ. I'm not going to stand here and listen to this because we're supposed to be in harmony in the Lord. We're the body of Christ. We're one family. And if we just did that, if we just stopped disunifying words before they could spread, how much more effective would our witness be? How much more effective would people take notice of what's going on and say, look at that church, look at that body of believers. They are an example of conflict resolution. That's why Paul says, look, and, and he names somebody. We're not sure in verse 2 who it is. He says, uh, my, my companion in the Lord. We don't know who that was. May have been Timothy, may have been Silas. We're not real sure. Acts 16 says that they were both there. But he says, look, Timothy or Silas, whoever it is, Clement, those of you that are, that are believers, those of you that are faithful to the Lord, 
You need to help these women resolve this because we don't want this to infect the church. And it's discouraging other people to see these two women that are leaders in disunity. And this is not only damaging the church, it's damaging our witness. So you guys need to get your act together and solve this. And it's no coincidence, the next thing he tells them following that is the direct opposite of what we see in verses 2 to 3. Because conflict never brings joy. Conflict never makes you go, I am so thrilled that I am in conflict with you. It is wonderful. Isn't this great that we're angry at each other right now? Doesn't that just fill you with joy? Conflict never brings joy. So he's saying, look, body of Christ, if you're going to be living in joy, if there's going to be the joy of the Lord, and that's your strength, you've got to get this resolved because this is not inviting the presence of the power of the Holy Spirit. So look at what he tells them to do next in verse 4. Instruction number 3 for this week and for life. Rejoice in the Lord how many times? Tell me. Always. Rejoice in the Lord always. Now that word rejoice means to be exceedingly glad. And Christians, those who love Jesus Christ, those who have been saved, have multiple reasons to be exceedingly glad every single day. We get to know the Lord personally. We get to be redeemed by the grace of God. We get to be filled with His Holy Spirit. We get to do the work of Christ. We get to experience the patience and the long-suffering and and the mercy of God every single day. We get to be faithful to Him, and we get to do the work of His calling. These are things that bring joy to us. And that doesn't mean it's just joy once in a while we come to church or we read the Bible or whatever. He says, what's the word here? Tell me again. It's the word always. I looked up the Greek word because I was interested. It's the Greek word, let me get this right, pantole. Now that's really important to know what the Greek word is here. Because the word always that's in our text, you know what it means in the Greek? It means always. Always. There's no difference between the Greek and the English. It's the same word. Rejoice in the Lord always. Now again, this is a practical and logical encouragement from the Holy Spirit who fills us and equips us and gives us everything we need. Listen now, don't waver, don't start arguing. God gives us everything that we need to rejoice in the Lord always. So he is not telling us something we can't do. But there's a sequence here. Look back at the text. He doesn't say rejoice always. Because if he said rejoice always, the first thing we would do would be to try to find that joy in what is material and circumstantial. Every word in the text is important. So, what are the three words after rejoice? Tell me. Rejoice in the Lord always. Not just, hey, do your best. Try to find some joy. Look at your circumstances. Get yourself in the best 
impossible position and, and, and kind of bring it around, surround yourself with good people and, and get to a place where you can find some joy. That's not what he says. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. In other words, live with a heavenly mindset and a heavenly perspective. Why? Go back to verse chapter 3. Because you're a citizen of heaven. The reason mankind is so miserable this morning, and they will tell you that they're not, but they are. Because we've been there. The reason mankind is so miserable, the reason why there's so much discontentment, the reason why people are pursuing everything but God to try to find joy and fulfillment and purpose is because of chapter 3, verse 19. Their minds on set on earthly things. And the problem with earthly things is they don't last. They die off and they get corrupted and they fade away, which is why Jesus says in Matthew 6, don't lay up for yourself treasures here because they'll rust and corrupt and moths will get to them and thieves will break in and steal them. Don't, don't lay up for yourselves treasures here. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And this is so absolutely essential to how we live our lives. And as hard as it is here, and this is going to be the hardest thing we hear this morning, and as much as we want to dispute it, here's the fact. The amount of joy in our lives is a direct reflection of how much we're abiding in Christ. The amount of joy in our lives is a direct reflection of how much we're abiding in Christ. Now, our initial reaction to that statement will be to quickly try to marginalize it and try to defend ourselves based on our circumstances or to say, well, yes, but other things in my life prove that I really love the Lord and I'm serving Him. But the Spirit of God is saying right here, joy is a defining characteristic of abiding in Christ. If joy is lacking, we cannot be regularly abiding in Christ. Why? Because it says in his presence is what? Tell me. Fullness of joy. So if there is a lack of joy in any way, it means that there is a lack of abiding because when we abide in the presence of Christ, our joy is complete. It's full. There's no lack there's no deficiency. There's nothing missing. When you abide in the presence of Christ, joy will overwhelm you. But the moment we step away from that, joy starts to fade. And if our joy is lacking, chapter 1 verse 25 of Philippians says that we can't be fully trusting in him because it says there is joy in faith. So if there's a lack of joy, two problems. There's a lack of abiding and there's a lack of faith. There's no way around that. I'm not making that up. That's what the Word of God says. That's what the Spirit's telling us, that if joy is lacking, something's missing. So what hinders that joy? What prevents us from being exceedingly glad? Well, we can't be exceedingly glad when we're focused on ourselves. Because there's too much that's wrong. If I really examine myself... I go, man, what in the world? Physically, I'm not where I want to be. Emotionally, I'm not where I want to be. Relationally, I'm not where I want to be. Spiritually, I'm not where I want to be. So if we look inward and we're focused on ourselves, even with the best of intentions, 
there's going to be too much that we dislike and we won't find any joy. And we focus on ourselves way more than we think we do. We're also not going to be exceedingly glad when we're focused on our circumstances. Life is not fair. And sometimes we deal with heartache and pain. And we can wallow on that emotionally. Or we can trust in Christ. Because Christ will heal us. And he'll comfort us. And he'll come alongside us. And he'll minister to us. But, But we don't always live there. We don't always put our full confidence in Christ. We start to concentrate on the circumstances. And that robs us of our joy. But Paul is saying, through the Holy Spirit, saying through him, rejoice in the Lord always. This is doable. If you will abide in Christ, you will have joy. Not happiness, not giddy, everything's great, there's no problems. That's not realistic. And that's not the meaning of the word. We'll get to this in a couple weeks in chapter 4, verse 11, where he says, learn to be content in all things. How much would it change our mindset? How much would it change the dynamic of our lives if we just took this one step of redirecting our focus away from ourselves and away from our circumstances and we started abiding fully in Christ? This is why, look back at the verse one more time, we're going to move on. This is why the Spirit says, not once, because we're stubborn, He says it twice, rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I say rejoice. In other words, if you didn't get it the first time, because you're a little hard-headed, let me say it again so you don't miss it. Rejoice in the Lord always. Let me tell you again, rejoice. Notice, the Lord is the source of joy. You will not find it anywhere else. And we know Christ, so we can know joy. I read what one pastor wrote, and I thought this is a wonderful phrase. If Christians don't have a continual feast of joy, it's their own fault. How many know that's right? If you don't have a continual feast of joy because you have Christ and you have the Holy Spirit and you have the Word of God and you have prayer and you have worship and you have the body and you have giving and you have service and you have a commission, if there's not a continual feast of joy because of all God has done, then it's on you because God has supplied everything that we need. Look at the fourth thought. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. This is an instruction that we can live. Now, uh, how many have a King James Bible? How many have one of those? Two of you, three of you, four, five, six, amen, seven, more hands. All right, no, I'm just kidding. The King James Bible, the word's moderation, right? Let your moderation be known to all men. The word in the text in the original means mildness. Mildness. And it comes from a root word that means to yield. Now, Enough with the Greek, Paul. Why are you talking about this? I'm making a big deal of it because essentially this is about being selfless. It's about not advancing your own rights, but waiving your rights in order to show love and mercy and care to other people. And it goes back, if you look back to chapter 2, it goes back to where he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he talks about the fact that Jesus essentially, if we can think in these terms, Jesus essentially waived his rights 
to act as God and took on the form of a man, humbling himself and becoming a bondservant so he can fulfill our law, go to the cross, be our substitute, die for us, and rise again. So he says, have this same attitude now in you that you, following example, are able to waive your rights Trusting God will provide. Trusting God will take care of you. Dying to self daily, yielding to the Holy Spirit. It all fits together. And the reason you're going to let your moderation or your mildness or or your gentle spirit be known is because it's designed now to show love for somebody else. Everything comes back to self not being prominent. So think about how that principle of moderation applies to love and respect that we're called to show for each other, especially to fellow believers, so that we can be an example of godliness and so that we can edify each other, build up and strengthen each other in the faith. The world always tells us, do things in moderation. You need to to eat in moderation. You can eat what you want when you're on a diet, but do it in moderation. And if you drink alcohol, the, the beer companies say, well, make sure you drink in moderation. Make sure you drink, but, but make sure you do it in moderation. And even exercise, something good like exercise. Well, yes, you should exercise, but you should do it in moderation because you can go too far. Listen, all those instructions are about us. This instruction from the Holy Spirit in chapter 4, verse 5, is directed toward others. Let your gentleness, let your moderation, let your mildness, let your, let your sacrifice, the mind of Christ, let that be known to all men. In other words, there's an outward responsibility that we have as believers to yield what we want in order to show care for others. That, uh, that applies specifically in three areas. The first one is to people who don't know Christ. That we restrain ourselves and our desires as an example of what Christ showed us so people will understand that when you trust Jesus Christ, your life is different. So they will be drawn to that and curious about that and say, how is it that you can be so steadfast and so peaceful and so content when life is so awful, and we can say, let me tell you, it's because I trust Jesus Christ as my Savior, and he's changed me. One sentence is the doorway to the gospel. So the first area of moderation is toward unbelievers. The second area of moderation is to people who hold strong spiritual convictions. People who believe that restricting themselves helps them walk in holiness and maintain a more pure witness. Now, if we're a little less on the side of that, we aren't to scoff at them or simply ignore what they believe because they're too rigid. Instead, the Bible calls us in chapter 4, verse 5, to restrain ourselves and to be careful for the sake of their conviction because we love them. 
Then the third area we're supposed to be careful is to those who are younger or weaker in the faith than we are. And this is a self-imposed restriction so that because we recognize that we have a responsibility to them to make sure that they're not stumbling in their new faith, to make sure that we're not providing a temptation to something that they're trying to overcome that will set them back. So we have to show moderation. We have to restrict ourselves. We have to have the mind of Christ because we care that they grow up in their faith. Now, this is not a suggestion. This is not, well, this would be great if we could ever get to this place, and this would be good. This is a calling on every believer to follow the example of Christ and to show yieldedness in what we do to be holy unto the Lord so non-Christians will be drawn to faith, people with strong conviction will be encouraged, and people who are young in the faith will be built up. That's our job. People are watching us to see if we're going to be different. Because if we're not different, what's the point of giving your life to Christ? If we look like everybody else, and again, I don't see this proudly or us against them. I'm saying this is what Bible's telling us. If we look like the world, the world will have no interest in giving their life to Christ because there's no point. Now that's such a little thing for us to do, but the impact is huge. And our constant thought should be, how can I edify somebody today? How can I encourage somebody spiritually today? How can I guard that person from being tempted? How can I guard that person from stumbling? And you know what? Maybe I need to look at my own life. Maybe I'm giving myself too much latitude. Because it's not about our freedom. It's about people growing in their faith. Look at the last thought. You guys have listened so well. The last motivation is the greatest motivation. And Paul closes this section with a final word of practical instruction, which isn't really a command as much as a reminder that really will change our thoughts and actions. Having come out of that, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. Then look at the last phrase of verse 5, and we'll pray. He says, the Lord is near. Now, I believe that has a double meaning. I believe the first meaning is that the Spirit of Christ is always close. He's indwelling us, and He's working in our lives, and He's watching whether we're honoring Him. So remember, at all times, whatever you're doing, the Lord's near. But I think the deeper meaning and the secondary meaning, which is the primary meaning, is that Christ's return is very close. And I want to focus on that one because I think it's the greatest motivation that we can have to live for Christ. There are really only two views about the return of Christ, about Jesus Christ coming back. Either you believe that he can and will return at any moment for those who trust him and love him, or, second view, you don't believe that he will return at any moment. Now, there are multiple variations of that, from you believe that there's more that has to be fulfilled and his, his return is delayed, or that he won't come back at all for the church. Some people don't believe in the rapture of the church. Or, or it goes all the way to the other extreme. You don't believe there's any God, any Jesus Christ, and it's a waste of time. So either you believe Christ is coming back at any moment, then in the next four seconds, we could hear a trumpet, he could appear, dead in Christ will rise first, and the rest of us who love Christ will go. Either you believe that, or you believe some variation of that he can't come at any moment. 
Now, if you hold the second view, and it's fine, if you hold the second view, this verse really isn't for you. Because you believe that more needs to happen, or, or that nothing will happen, but, but either way, you believe there's time. So verse 5, that those four words really don't apply to you this morning. But if you believe that Jesus Christ is going to take his church home at any moment, this, these four words will absolutely impact how you live. Because if the Lord is near, if Jesus can return at any moment, then everything we do needs to be in view of that. Every day is preparation. Every day is looking to the sky and saying, is it today? What do I need to do to prepare my heart? What do I need to do to fulfill the Great Commission? What do I need to do to tell everybody? Because if Jesus is coming today, then the world is about to get very, 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 very messy. I mean, what we see now is just a little drop in the bucket of what's going to happen. You remember the Revelation study that we did? What we see now is just a tiny little increment of what's going to happen in the world. So if Jesus Christ can come at any moment, and, and he may come at any moment, then we need to prepare very differently. Every day needs to be preparation. Every day needs to be consecration. Every day needs to be anticipation of seeing him face to face. And this is the one thing in our study this morning that is not a, an incremental change. This requires us to fully reevaluate everything that we do and to faithfully prepare for his return. It should stoke up an urgency in us. It should stoke up a fervor in us. Lord, where am I? If you came right now, if Jesus appeared in the sky right now, how would he find you? We talked last week about the test and being a citizen of heaven. Well, well, how would Jesus find me right now? If he appears, he knows my heart. He knows what's going on in my life. How's he going to find me? Is he going to find somebody who's unwaveringly faithful and trusts him and rejoices in the Lord always and is content in all things and is sharing Christ with people and is fervent in prayer and is ready for his return and is ready to go to heaven like Paul was? Or is he going to find something different? Because in that moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the Bible says, there, there will be no more time to evaluate. There will be no time to say, wait a second, Jesus. Hold on a second. got to get myself straight now. No, there's no more time. If Jesus can appear at any moment, we better get ourselves ready. Everything in life is that the Lord is in view. Does that sober you this morning, or does it excite you? Do, do, do you say, wow, okay, well, that changes things? Or is it, I can't wait. Lord, I'm ready. Lord, you're going to find me faithful. I don't say that proudly. Lord, you're going to find me faithful because I love you, and my life is given to you, and to me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Wherever I am, Lord, I'm going to serve you. These are practical things. Look back at it one more time. We're going to pray. These are practical instructions that we can follow. Practical things that God by His Spirit has given us the ability to do right now. And it can't be done partially. It has to be done by complete yieldedness to the Lord. 
And considering what Christ has done for us, it only makes sense. Because of what Christ has done, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord, which is reasonable. And this is not uh, heavy. This is not painful. This is not, oh, man, look at all this stuff I've got to do now. This is such an obligation. The Bible says this is our joy and our privilege. It's a joy this morning to know Jesus Christ. If you have been saved by him, it is a joy to know Jesus Christ. He has delivered you and me from sin forever. He's defeated it forever. When God looks at our life, he sees no record. And he says, you are my joy and my crown. Now prepare yourself.